In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible is study tonight from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 18. The main subject of chapter 17 was faith. This faith is put into action through the constant prayer. That's why the focus of chapter 18 is prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ offered three parables on the power of prayer in the Gospel of St. Luke. The prayer, the parable of the persistent neighbor in the previous chapter, and in this chapter actually two parables. The prayer, the parable, sorry, the parable of the persistent neighbor was in chapter 11, from verse 5 to 13, and this parable invites us to urgent prayer. In chapter 18, we have two parables. The first one, the persistent widow, from verse 1 to 8, and this parable is focused on the necessity to pray without ceasing, with the patience of faith. And the second parable in chapter 18 is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, from verse 9 to 14, concern the necessity of humility when we pray. The outline of chapter 18 from verse 1 to 8, the parable of the persistent widow. From 9 to 14, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. From 15 to 17, the Lord blesses little children. From 18 to 23, the Lord counsels the rich young ruler. From 24 to 30, a teaching on the danger of riches. From 31 to 34, third prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection. And from 35 to 43, a blind man receives his sight. Today, we'll take half of the chapter until verse 23. So let's start from verse 1. Then he spoke a, parab a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. This verse started by the word then. Then he spoke. Then calls attention to the fact that the parable or the teaching to follow was a continuation of what had preceded. So then connects the parable that he is about to say with the teaching before. As I told you in the previous chapter, the Lord spoke about faith, suffering, the end of time tribulations and the position of the church. So, with all these things, what we should do? We should be in constant prayers. That's why after he finished speaking about suffering and end of time tribulations, he spoke about constant prayer. And he gave us this parable of the widow whose only weapon was persistent prayer. That is all what she did, persistent prayer. It is only by means of this intense prayer that faith will be preserved. When we pray constantly, our faith will be preserved. The Lord said, he gave them parable 
that we should always pray and not lose heart. Often we fail in prayer because we lose heart. We become discouraged and then no longer pray as we should. It is easy to lose heart in prayer because prayer is a hard work that we too often approach lightly. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, St. Paul praised a man in Colossae, his name Epiphras, because he was always laboring fervently in prayer, laboring fervently in prayer. Prayer needs hard work. If we approach it lightly, we will lose heart. It's easy to lose heart in prayer, also because the devil hates prayer. And if prayer were were powerless, Satan would not attack it. If prayer is powerless, it would be easy, not a hard work. Also, it's easy to lose heart in prayer because we are not always convinced of the reality of the power of prayer. Many times, prayer is our last resort, although it should be first resource. Our Lord Jesus Christ lived a life of prayer, and we must therefore not lose heart in prayer. The Canaanite woman kept praying, though she was first denied her request. Jacob, son of Isaac, refused to let go, even when his leg was crippled. But he labored in prayer and said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Verse 2, saying there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. So after the Lord encouraged the people to pray without losing heart, now he is telling a parable of a judge. This judge had no reverence for God and definitely, consequently, no regard for the rights of men. The two things go together hand in hand. He that has no regard for God can be expected to have none for man. And our Lord has here indirectly taught us what ought to be the character of a judge. He should fear God and regard the rights of men. Regard men means had no respect for their opinions or their rights. Verse 3. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. She came to him means she kept coming to him frequently. And why a widow? It is synonym of helplessness. Helplessness. So this widow woman is a representative of the Christian church and the Christian soul. She was a widow with no one to defend her or protect her. That's why she was asking for justice. Get justice for me. It doesn't denote revenge, but simply that she wished to have justice. A thing which this this judge was bound to do, but 
it's very clear he had no intention to do it. Who is her adversary? The one who opposed her. The one who opposed in law. In this case, it seems that the judge was unwilling to do justice. But who are our adversaries? Sin, corruptions of our heart, Satan, demons, wicked oppressors, persecutors. Verse 4, And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard the man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. He would not for a while, means for a considerable time. It was his duty to attend to the claims of justice, but this was long delayed. And this just actually had no shame to acknowledge his own sin when he said, I do not fear God nor regard man. But he made a decision to avenge her. I will hear her, do her justice, deliver her from her troublesome adversary. Why? Because lest she weary me, it was not from a conscience of duty in him as a judge or from a pitying the, wid uh, uh, the poor widow, but from selfish end of his own, for his own ease. He doesn't want to be disturbed. His ears stand with her noise and cry. He was annoyed with her company day with her company day after day. So the unjust judge only reluctantly answered the woman's request. But the Lord did not give us this parable to say that God is like the unjust judge, but actually he is giving this parable to tell us that God is not like him. God loves to answer our prayers. Even he helps us when we pray. The Holy Spirit intercedes with groaning in our heart. The woman, the widow, had to overcome the judge's reluctance to help. Many times we feel we must do the same when we pray, to use our persistent to overcome God's reluctance. But God is not reluctant to help us. That's why, if we think this way, this misses the whole point of the parable. Jesus did not say that men always ought to pray and not lose heart because God is reluctant but because he is not reluctant. That's why this should be our encouragement and our motivation to prayer. But sometimes it doesn't seem to us that God, sorry, sometimes it seems to us that God is reluctant to answer our prayer. We pray and pray and we get no answer. So we may interpret this as God is reluctant. Verse 6 and 7, Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? God 
may delay answering our prayer. This delay in prayer not needed to change God, but it is needed to change us. When God delays the answer that we be transformed by our persistence in prayer and standing long before God, we will be transformed. Because persistence in prayer brings a transforming element into our lives and building us into the character of God himself. When God delays responding to our prayer because he wants to build into us a heart that cares about things the same way he does. This judge was unfair, but God is fair. This judge had no personal interest in the widow, but God loves and cares for those who seek him. This judge answered the widow's cry out of pure self-interest, lest she annoys me. But God loves to bless his people for their good. That's why the Lord, when he said, hear what the unjust judge said, he wants to tell us, be encouraged then, so you can be frequent in prayer and persistent in your prayer with God. If the repeated persistent cries of this afflicted widow made an impression on the heart of this wicked judge, how much more our persistent in prayer will be regarded by God, who is ever ready to give all kinds of blessing abundantly to his children. That's why he said, shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? The Lord tells us that God permits suffering among his servant long after they have begun to pray for deliverance. So may God allow suffering even after we start praying for deliverance. Because as I told you, this is part of our transformation. We are counseled here by our Lord Jesus Christ to cry day and night unto him. And our prayers shall, we be, shall be treasured up before him. And in his own good time, they will be answered. And the Lord said, though he bears long with them, Maybe the first impression, them, refers to us. But another opinion, perhaps he meant, bears long with their adversary, their oppressors, their persecutors, who are vessels of wrath, fitted for destruction. But God endures with much long suffering, till the suffering of his people are accomplished and our transformation happened and also the iniquities of the oppressors are full, reached their fullness. Verse 8, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, Will he really find faith on the earth? Avenge them speedily means suddenly, unexpectedly. He will surely vindicate them. And a time when they were nearly, nearly ready to give over 
and to fail into despair, to fall into despair, God will answer the prayer. Then the Lord said some difficult words. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? So, these difficult words seem to point at least a concern. A concern. Lest in the second coming, being long delayed, true faith would have died out of the hearts even of the faithful and the believers. So, though this is true that God will avenge his elect, yet will he find his elect faithful to him? The danger is not that God will be unfaithful. He will surely be true to his promises. But the danger is that his elect will be discouraged, will not persevere in prayer, will not continue to have confidence in him, and under heavy trials, maybe they will fall into despair. So the message here, God is telling us, even if I delay my answer, even if I delay my response to you, it's for your own benefit. But don't lose heart. Don't lose faith. Be strong in your faith. Wait for the Lord. That's why unless we know who God is, and definitely God is not like this unjust judge, unless we are people who pray without losing heart, we will pray regardless. And we do not yet have the kind of faith Jesus will look for when he returns. So we need to know who God is and to pray without losing heart. Otherwise, when Jesus comes, he will not find faithful people. He will not find faithful people. Verse 9. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Previously, the Lord had spoken to the disciples, exhorting them perseverance and persistence in prayer. Now, he discouraged people from extreme self-confidence. St. Augustine connects this parable to what Jesus said in verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Saying that Jesus knew that some would arrogantly attribute this faith to themselves. So, faith in themselves, not in God. That's why he gives this parable. By the term some, He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. So the term some, most probably, he meant the Pharisees and their disciples, who, as we see in the history of the gospel, were generation of men who were guilty both of boasting of themselves and scorning and despising all others. That is their, their character. They boast themselves and scorn others. The word despised others means disdained, made nothing of others, treated them with arrogant at contempt. Verse 10, two men went up 
to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So our Lord mentioned before that the Pharisees made clean the outside of the cup. Means they look pure and righteous from outside. But pride, vainglory, contempt for others lived within them. So they went up, went up because the temple was on the Mount of Moriah. And they had in the temple set hours for prayer. As we read in Acts chapter 3 verse 1, John and Peter ascended at the time of the ninth hour. So during these times of prayer, everybody goes up to worship God. But here the Lord mentioned only two. And both men prayed, but both men did not come to God the same way. The Pharisee went up to the temple to pray, but his prayer is no prayer at all. Not even a thanksgiving, only a boast. He stood to pray. Standing was the ordinary Jewish attitude of prayer. But some suggested that the word seems to imply that he stood by himself away from the tax collector to avoid the defiling contact of others. In his self-righteousness, if he stands close to the tax collector, he will be defiled by him. This Pharisee spoke with himself, not with God. And in his short prayer, he repeated the word I five times. In his so-called prayer, the Pharisee praised himself and compared himself to other men, putting them down. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus before him, with himself, not with God. Prayed thus with himself, not with God. Although he said, God, I thank you. But it is not a thanksgiving. It's boast, boasting. That I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I am not like other men. This was the first false step. It is not hard to have such a high opinion of self when you compare yourself with others. Most of, other, most of us, we feel that we are better than others. It is often not difficult to find someone worse than me. It's easy to find someone worse than me. He did not compare his own imperfections with the infinite perfection of the eternal God. But he compared himself with the imagined greater imperfections of his fellow men. And he stood with his pride, not with pity, on those who were still struggling with their sins. He started by thanking God but not really in thanksgiving, but to exalt himself and to place his righteousness in his own work. I fast, I tithe. And he treated all other men in a condescending and humiliating manner. So, he was not thanking God, but rather he was praising himself. He said, I am not like extortioners, unjust adulterers. Although the Pharisees were oppressors of the poor, 
devoured widows' houses, extorted money from them under a deception of long prayer. They are fittingly represented by the unjust steward in the parable in chapter 16. They were unclean, unchaste, an adulterous generation of men, as the Lord said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. Also, he compared himself with the tax collector, pointing to him at some distance with great hate, condescension, and contempt. This was his prayer. Verse 12, that's his prayer. I fast twice a week. I give tithe of all that I possess. So, he is praising himself. The Jews fasted voluntarily on Mondays and Thursdays. He did not say as Job, when Job was in his boasting mood, Job said, I am a father to the poor. I made the widow's heart to sing for joy. Nehemiah looked upon good deeds done for his country, works of reformation. But the Pharisee, didn't do any of this. He was not a father to the uh, orphans. He did not take care of the widows. He did not reform his country. But he is boasting in his own actions, fasting and tithing. As the Lord said, you neglected the whiter matters of the law. St. Augustine said in all of his words, the Pharisee asked nothing of God. That's why he obtained nothing from God. He did not ask anything from God. But let us see the tax collector, verse 13. And the tax collector is standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Standing afar off, not because he was a Gentile and did not dare to approach the holy place, because most likely he was a Jew, but because he was a true repentant, felt himself completely unworthy to appear before God, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, holding down the head with the eyes fixed upon the earth, it is a sign of deep distress and great feeling of confession of guilt, beating his breast a token of excessive grief. So he is completely sad, heartbroken. The publican neither recounts nor thinks of good kind of deeds he had done. So his humility in his address to God is described by his posture, looking down and beating his chest. He looked upon the earth as one that thought himself not worthy to look toward heaven, and his action beating his chest as one full of sorrow and trouble. And also, by the matter and form of his prayer, he confessed himself a sinner. He escapes to the free grace of God. The Pharisee trusted his own righteousness. I fast. I am not like others. I pay the tithe. But the tax collector he is running to the grace of God. So the Lord contrasted between a boasting Pharisee who is precise about external fulfillment of the law and whose pride causes him 
to be self-centered, blind to his own sins, and between him and the tax collector, who humbly acknowledges both his sins and his need for the grace and mercy of God. Verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. God judges hearts, not words. The Pharisee was not asking God's forgiveness for his sins. He did not ask anything. He was only boasting of his goods and his good works and despising the tax collector. He relied on his own power and deeds before God and was blind to his own sins, so his sins remained. But the tax collector left himself to God's judgment and God's mercy, therefore he was forgiven. True humbleness is simply seeing things the way they are. I know that I am a sinner. The Pharisee saw himself as something great while he was not. The tax collector saw himself as a sinner needing the mercy and the grace of God. We gain nothing when we come to God prideful. But when we come to him in humbleness, broken and asking his mercy and asking his grace, we will be justified. Verse 15. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. When the Lord offered us the parable of humility as the right way by which our prayers are answered, now the Lord offers us a practical lesson to reveal his humility and his simplicity. He shows clearly how he is open-armed to the little children, meaning to the simple souls that love humility and approach him with humble heart. Parents were bringing their infants to Jesus to pray over them and bless them. St. Ambrose of Milan said, the disciples rebuked them, rebuked the children, not because of harsh feeling toward the children, but that Jesus might not be pressed by the crowds from getting unnecessarily tired. Because children love to come to Jesus, we should never block the way or fail to provide them a way. Christ's interest in little children was real and for their own sakes, and it was primary, not merely secondary. So he gave them his uh, complete undivided attention. So the Lord said in verse 16, but Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, will by no means enter it. So God is reminding us that if we hope to enter the kingdom, we must have the spirit of the children. Children never think of putting forward any claim of merit or paying any price for kindness showed them. Little children mean to come to the Lord without prejudice, without pride, without ambition, without vanity, but with meekness and humility. 
This parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector was evidently in his mind when he said this. If you want to receive the kingdom of God, receive it as little children. And this command, don't forbid them to come to me, is a response to the people who prevent the infant baptism. Many Christian denominations prevent infant baptism. But the Lord said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. Also in the Old Covenant, male babies entered covenant with God at the age of eight days. Don't forbid them. Verse 18. Now a certain ruler asking him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Chapter 18, as I told you, focus on prayer as the major way to be blessed with divine fellowship. We have seen how prayer blends with faith, which motivates us to it. So we pray persistently and with pleasure. Now the Lord is warning us of a dangerous adversary who make us lose the spirit of prayer, lose heart when we pray. What is this adversary? Is money worshipping, love of money, through this story of this ruler. A certain ruler, we refer to this man as a rich young ruler. Because in Luke, he was described as ruler and also as rich. And in Matthew chapter 19, he was described as young. So we refer to him young, rich ruler. And we don't know ruler in politics, in the world, or ruler in the world of religion. And his question concerning eternal life maybe indicate that he was a Pharisee. And he addressed the Lord, good teacher, which means he came with intense reverence, but nothing more. It's clear that the young man did not believe that the Lord is the Messiah or is divine. Otherwise, he would, not, he would have never made the great refusal recorded when the Lord told him, go and sell all what you have. If he truly believed that Jesus is divine, definitely he would obey him. But the ruler did not really know who Jesus was. If he did, he would humble himself as the tax collector did in his prayer. That's why in verse 19, the Lord told him, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that's God. Jesus did not deny his own goodness. Instead, he asked the man, Do you understand what you are saying when you call me good? No one is good, but one is God. So, do you believe that I am God? Or just call me good teacher and that's it? And not beyond this. Verse 18, the Lord told him, You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. This ruler was an educated Jew of his day, and of course, he knew the commandment. The Lord 
purposely chose the commandment from the second table. You know, there are two tables. First table has four commandments about our relationship with God. Second table has ten commandments, has, sorry, six commandments regulating our relationship with each other. So the Lord chose commandments from the second tablet, which are relevant to man's relationship to man. To show the young man that he had fallen short even of these in their true interpretation. And much more, he failed in his love to God, which is the essence of the first tablet. But the young man replied to the Lord in verse 21, and he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So the young man claimed to fulfill all of God's commandment regarding how we must treat one another. It's likely that he actually did, did keep them in a way that made him righteous in his own eyes and in the eyes of others. But certainly he did not keep them in the full and perfect sense in which Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mountain. The young man meant no more than he had general, generally observed the commandment. But in spite of this, he felt something is lacking. Otherwise, why he came to Jesus asking him, what should I do to inherit the kingdom of God? His conscience was troubled. His mind was unassured of God's approval. And he clearly recognized that something had needed to make him truly happy. So, there was something gracious and sincere in the eagerness of this young man. That's why the Lord gave him a challenge, a test of something higher, which he seems to desire. He said, what shall I do to inherit the kingdom of God? But unfortunately, he failed in the test. In the Gospel of St. Mark, Mark wrote that the Lord, looking at him, loved him. So the response of Jesus to this man was set in love. When he told him, go and sell, it was not a challenge to paralyze him, but it was a challenge of love, no doubt. Because the Lord perceived that this young man was misguided. We can see this man had everything. Riches, outwardly righteousness, respect, prestige. But the Lord told him, you still lack one thing. The man had everything. But he knew that all what he had will not give him eternal life. So in reality, he had nothing. So he came to Jesus asking him, what shall I do to inherit the kingdom of God? So Jesus asked the ruler to give up his money because he could see that money was an idol in his life. He asked him to give it to the poor. He told him, I kept the commandment. The commandment about how to treat one another. 
So if now, if you know God's will in treating one other, go sell what you have and give it to the poor. But the Lord was able to see that this young man did not love others as he should. He had all the qualities except total dependence on God. He trusted money more than God. His wealth was a hindrance to that last attribute. So Jesus asked him to renounce his wealth. That's why in verse 23, but when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. The call to forsake everything and to follow Jesus is a call to put God first in all things. It is full obedience to the first tablet of the law, the four commandments about love the Lord God, which dealt with our relationship with God. This man went very sorrowful and because he was very rich. This combination, very sorrowful and very rich, is a tragic combination. But unfortunately, it is common enough to those who trust in the money. This command to sell all and give to the poor was special. The youth had asked for some great thing to do. What shall I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus, he revealed to him his own self-deception when he said, I observed all these commandments from my youth and showed him that in spite of his spiritual pride, he is but trying to serve two masters. You still serving two masters. So this will conclude our Bible study tonight. Uh, glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.